good morning and uh, welcome to the UCL Lunchtime Lecture. Uh, I'm Anthony Costello. I'm Professor of Global Health and Sustainable Development at UCL, working in the office of the Vice Provost. And it was one of my great pleasures that before I went off to work for the World Health Organization for three years, this was back five or six years, six years ago, um, I had the pleasure of appointing Jean-Vierre Manel to join the Institute for Global Health. And it was one of our really best appointments. She's done a great deal of work on violence against women, the gender aspects of it. And she's going to give a talk today about uh, extreme violence and how it is uh, affected by uh, extreme events and whether we need to change perspective on all of this. Um, you can put your questions into Slido or, and uh, I'll be very happy to uh, um, broker those questions at the end of John Vienne's talk. But um, she, we got her from uh, the London School of Economics. She's a, a psychologist by background, a community psychologist, and she's made a tremendous contribution uh, and has now been made an associate professor and so with little further ado, I will um, invite Jean-Vierre to give her talk. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm going to talk to you about violence against women and girls. And I really want to look at the current situation around COVID and how it's impacting women's lives around the world. Um, this isn't the happiest topic, I realize, but I'm going to promise and try and make it more than just doom and gloom and try to give a little bit of hope because I actually think that there's a lot of reason for hope at the moment. So before I get started, first I want you to close your eyes, wherever it is that you are, probably most of you in the comfort of your bedroom or kitchen like I am. So close your eyes and imagine a world without violence. Imagine a world where you don't even have to be scared of the potential of violence because it's never going to happen to you. Wherever you are, Try to imagine walking down a narrow alley. It's nighttime. There's no one around. And suddenly a man approaches from the opposite direction. But rather than feeling scared, you feel incredibly relaxed. There isn't even a hint of hesitation or fear because this is a world without violence. So if I'm honest with myself, I actually find it quite difficult to imagine this. And it's probably the same for many of the women and many of the men listening to this as well. So the idea of a world without the possible threat of violence isn't actually the world that we live in today. So one in three women around the world will experience violence during their lifetime from a husband or boyfriend. This is a shocking figure. It means that all of us are likely to know someone who's experienced violence. And during the last year, we've seen cases of violence really increase substantially with COVID. So China reported a threefold increase in domestic violence after imposing quarantine in 2019. Um, where I am in the UK, the project Counting Dead Women recorded 14 women killed by men in the first three weeks of lockdown in March of last year, which was the highest rate for 11 years. And the organization Refuge reported a 66% increase in the number of calls to the National Domestic Abuse Helpline between March and May. So that's just the UK. In many parts of the world, the increase in violence during COVID 
may even be more devastating because this baseline figure of one to three was actually much higher to begin with. So in South African informal settlements, just as an example, two thirds of women experience violence from an intimate partner. In Peru, three quarters of women from Quechua speaking indigenous communities, which we're working with experience violence. And so while we don't have the, the data yet about these small communities, one can certainly imagine that COVID-19 has had some fairly drastic consequences for women's lives in these areas. So in the long term, violence against women actually seems to be improving globally. Societies are opening up, they're becoming more democratic, more gender equal. However, there still isn't a single country in the world without violence against women. And this isn't a linear progress of improving prevalence rates either. A country doesn't just improve their rates on violence and never go back. It really just takes one event or one crisis to change the tables. And we start to see rising rates of violence all over again. And this is essentially what's happening with COVID-19. So today, I wanna to talk to you about countries and regions that really have a very high prevalence rate of violence against women. And I'm gonna to refer to these settings as extreme or high prevalence, by which I mean that over 50% of women will experience violence. So this number of one in three, all of a sudden becomes one in two or three and four. And I wanna focus on these particular settings because I think they actually have a lot to teach us about how to prevent violence during the current pandemic, but actually also in general. So in countries with the highest prevalence rates of violence against women, which are marked on my map here in red and orange, violence isn't really just something that some women might experience one day. Most women in these contexts will experience violence and it's most likely gonna be at the hands of their husband or partner. So what we can see on this map, although there's some data missing as you can see in the gray, but what we can see is that this really includes large parts of the African continent includes parts of Asia and Latin America and most of the Pacific, although you've just got small little dots there. And the countries highlighted this on this map are vastly different contexts, each with their own rich history and their own unique culture. In many ways, these countries couldn't be more different. And I've worked on violence against women in several of these countries, including Afghanistan, Bangladesh, India, Rwanda and South Africa, Peru, and most recently Samoa in the Pacific. And through years of doing qualitative research where I'm asking women in communities really about their experience of violence in these various countries, I found that as different as these contexts and settings are, there are some similarities about how violence against women actually plays out. And it's these similarities that I think have a lot to teach us about how to prevent it. So this is what we're essentially looking at as part of the EVE project which stands for Evidence for Violence Prevention in the Extreme. And I wanna share some of the thinking that we've had as part of this project. So our aim with the EVE project has been really to try to understand what's happening in countries and regions with the highest prevalence of violence around the world. And we've been doing a number of different activities towards this, which you can see on the left-hand side of this slide. So we've done a systematic review of literature on risk factors for violence, an analysis of some quantitative survey data that looks at risk factors and how they compare between different countries globally. Um, and we've been doing some theoretical work as well on how communities with high prevalence of violence can be better involved in designing their own interventions to prevent it. And we also have two case studies that we're looking at Samoa, so an Indian nation, or sorry, an island nation in the Polynesian region of the Pacific, and the indigenous community of Amantani in the Peruvian Andes. 
And we're still really in the early days of this project, but we've already quite learned quite a bit, actually. And I just want to share some of our learning with you. In particular, I'm actually going to look at four specific factors that we know make women more vulnerable to violence in high prevalent settings. And I'll outline why these four factors increase violence. But as I promised at the beginning, I'm not just going to give you the negative side of the story. I also want to talk about what we can learn from each of these factors that actually could be used to reduce violence in all settings in all countries. So first, let's look at gender. So, so far, I've really been talking about violence against women specifically, and that's deliberate. But some of you may be saying, hey, but what about men? Men are also raped, and they also experience abuse from their intimate partners. And this is absolutely true. However, women are more likely than men to experience violence from an intimate partner. And just to be clear, as an aside, I'm talking about anybody who identifies as women, regardless of their actual biology. But so why is it that women are more likely to be abused? Feminists, including myself, have been arguing for decades that this is really about gender inequality. So women are more likely to be abused by men because of social norms that position good men as breadwinners, as leaders, as strong, while women are seen as caregivers or obedient to men's needs and desires. A good woman should be a natural mother who ultimately puts her children's needs above all else and is a good wife to her husband. So in my own research, I've actually seen that violence against women often happens when women are trying to go against or subvert these gender norms. So if the gender norms dictate that a man should be the main breadwinner in a particular society, then a woman who earns more money than her husband may experience violence. Or if the norm is for the woman to remain inside the home, as it is in Afghanistan, women may be beaten for even going outside of their house. And often it's not the husbands or fathers that are always enforcing these gender norms, but it's other men outside of the household or other women, such as mother-in-laws. So this qualitative observation that women are beaten when they transgress gender norms has also been shown by some quantitative studies. So for example, there's been a cross-national multi-level model that was developed by Lori Heisey and Andreas Kotzedam that showed that globally, gender inequalities drive violence against women in three main ways. First, Women are more likely to experience violence in countries where men are expected to have authority over women. So this confirms the observation that I was just talking about, that violence is about going against gender norms. Women experience violence when they're perceived essentially to be going against men's authority in some way. Second, women are more likely to experience violence in settings where violence against women is widely accepted and condoned. So if everyone thinks it's okay, men are more likely to use it. Thirdly, women are more likely to experience violence in places where laws and policies are unsupportive of their ability to own land, property, or other key resources. So my point here is really that gender inequalities matter. Gender norms that position women as inferior to men in decision-making that undermine their participation in public life, that reduce gender equality under the law, these all make a difference in rates of violence against women. And women who live in societies that are less gender equal are ultimately more likely to experience violence. However, the point I also wanna make is that this isn't the only inequality that matters. 
some groups of women are more likely than other groups of women to experience violence. And this leads to my second risk factor for violence against women in high prevalence settings, which is really about structural inequalities. So structural inequalities really refer to the inequalities that are hardwired into a society. It's when the institutions that we rely on, the legal frameworks, the organizations, social networks, have implicit biases that stigmatize or marginalize a certain group of people. So gender inequalities are certainly a form of structural inequality, but structural inequalities are also found in how systems treat people differently based on their race, their class, their abilities to do certain things, just to name a few. So to give a specific example, these pictures are from Peru, um, where we've been working with women really in the remote Amazon. And more recently, we've been working with a group of indigenous women in the Andes. And both of these communities in Peru are experiencing extremely high levels of intimate partner violence, in part because of the structural inequalities that they experience as part of their indigenous status. So in the Amazon, a local survey estimated that 79% of women had experienced some form of sexual violence. Indigenous communities in Peru, like those that we're working with in the Andes, have estimated rates of physical violence around 75%. So Indigenous women are at a higher risk of violence simply because they are Indigenous. Indigenous communities in Peru in general are really highly stigmatized. They're marginalized from the rest of society. And this means that a woman who's being abused by her husband or partner is very unlikely to leave her community to seek help from formal services outside. She knows that if she does this, she may be treated by healthcare or social services staff really poorly. She might not speak the mainstream language very well at all. And the system itself is not actually oriented to helping her. So the woman, women we worked with in the Amazon are 12 hours away by canoe from the closest town. And they rarely have enough money to actually pay for the petrol to get there. So they stay in their communities with very little help, hope of actually stopping any violence that happens to them. And this is structural inequality. This is what I'm talking about. So before I said that gender inequalities matter, and now I'm saying they're not really the only inequality that matters when it comes to violence against women. We need to consider multiple forms of inequality. So racism, like that experienced by Indigenous women. And we need to start thinking about how these inequalities actually create violence in the lives of women. So my third risk factor for violence in high prevalence settings is armed conflict. And study after study has really shown that both conflict and post-conflict settings have higher rates of violence against women. Celebrities such as Angelina Jolie have really drawn attention to the use of rape as a weapon of war and is, as a key example of how this plays out in conflict settings. But more surprising or interesting is perhaps the fact that armed conflict also increases rates of intimate partner violence. So rape is not only a weapon of war, men in conflict settings are far more abusive to their wives and partners than men who are not living in conflict settings. Over the years, I've been working in conflict and post-conflict settings, including Afghanistan and Rwanda. And as we can all imagine, armed conflict is absolutely devastating to people's lives. It's forced people to leave their homes. It's put families into really disastrous financial situations, not to mention just the pure loss of life. 
So all of this creates enormous anxiety and stress, which in turn also helps to justify and contribute to the use of violence in people's relationships and in their households. Sometimes I think of it as almost a perfect storm of risk factors for violence against women in conflict settings. So the conflict reduces everybody's mental health. At the same time, the conflict disrupts existing social networks and patterns of behavior in ways that also can increase gender inequalities. And so this can all lead to dramatic increases in violence against women. And we can see this very much happening in our work in Afghanistan. So the war has completely destroyed families and social networks. It's killed husbands and fathers, and it's fed a drug trade that's really contributed to widespread addiction among many of the survivors. So in this way, the war in Afghanistan has only increased and reified the gender inequalities that already existed. It was illegal to educate women under the Taliban and women were required to really have to be under the protection of male relatives. And this is still very much the reality for a lot of women in Afghanistan. So when a woman loses her father in the war, she often also loses her protection in life. Being married is really her only option. The need for women to find security through a husband, in fact, only grows with the conflict in ways that emphasize existing gender inequalities and really drive this violence against women. However, if we compare this to Rwanda, we also see how conflict can disrupt gender inequalities in a way that might help women's lives improve. So during the genocide in 1994, men were killed in such large numbers that after the war, the country really realized that women need to be central to the government's efforts to rebuild the country. Laws around property ownership were changed. Women were brought into government positions en masse. And today Rwanda remains the country with the highest number of women in parliament. So there's 61% of women versus 34% in the UK's House of Commons. So as a result, the conflict in Rwanda has really challenged gender norms about women's leadership abilities. So just as a, a bit of a caveat, I think this does need to be taken with a grain of salt and that there's still many gender inequalities that remain in Rwanda. But I think what it shows is that armed conflict can really disrupt our lives in a way that brings about profound changes if there's the political will to do so. So for my last risk factor for violence in high-prevalent settings, I wanna take a look at poverty. The evidence on whether or if poverty contributes to increased violence against women is a little bit murky, but it's definitely worth working through the arguments that are being made about this. So when we look at the map of countries with high prevalence of violence against women, this at first appears to map quite closely to GDP. So the light blue areas on the top map on GDP overlap slightly with the dark red and orange areas on the prevalence map below. But in their global analysis, HiC and Katsudem have shown that this isn't actually the case, that what we're seeing is something different. So there doesn't appear in their analysis to be a direct relationship between GDP and prevalence rates of violence against women at a national level. They argue that GDP is actually an indicator of social development. So what we're actually seeing is changes in social norms that come with higher GDP because good economic health leads to higher levels of education 
higher levels of household income in general and social support. So it isn't the relative poverty of a country that determines the level of violence. Once again, it comes back to the social norms and inequalities. But this doesn't mean to say that poverty doesn't have a role to play. And as I've mentioned a little bit, living in poverty is incredibly hard. It increases stress and anxiety in people's lives. There's a good example of how the stress and anxiety leads to the use of violent behavior by men. Men living in poverty may feel that they are not able to live up to expectations of what it means to ultimately be a real man, that they cannot provide for the family in the way they should be able to. And so they use violence as a means of making themselves feel powerful and in control in their lives. That's the example that's often used in the literature. So we can see from this example that poverty, much like armed conflict, can actually reaffirm gender norms that justify violence against women. The use of violence becomes a means of acting out one's frustration, essentially, and not being able to achieve ideals of masculinity. And at the same time, reifying the norm of men in control and more powerful than women. So while the relative poverty of a country may not matter in comparison to other countries, Absolute poverty does matter because of how it affects everyone's mental health and the mental health of those experiencing really extreme levels of poverty. This is very much the argument that's being made by Andrew Gibbs and the research group that's led by Rachel Jukes at the South African MRC. So they argue that poverty really interacts with gender norms in the ways that put strains on households contributing to poor mental health increased alcohol and substance abuse, as well as an increase in child abuse, all of which lead to increases in violence against women. So high prevalence settings are basically settings where all of this is happening. Gender norms, high levels of extreme poverty, a general normalization of violence. But I actually don't think it's a matter of gender inequalities and the normalization of violence being particularly severe in these settings. I think it looks more like this. So, High prevalence settings essentially find themselves at the intersection of multiple structural inequalities all at once. There are gender norms that ultimately position women as inferior to men, there's poverty, and then there's also a number of other structural inequalities that often characterize high prevalence settings. I've already mentioned indigeneity, but this is all really about the history of colonialism, which affects many low and middle income settings. There's are also the structural inequalities that come along with divisions in race and class. So violence against women in high prevalence setting is ultimately a convergence of these various structural factors, or as Paul Farmer famously called it, it's about structural violence. Each of the four factors that I've been talking about that drive high rates of violence against women are really just different manifestations of structural violence. So gender inequalities, racism against indigenous populations, poverty, even armed conflict. Actually, in many ways, conflict is probably the most obviously political and deliberate enactment of violence on individuals who are not actually responsible for the conflict in the first place. But all of these are structural, is the point I'm trying to make. Okay, so now I wanna say some good news. I wanna move on to where I think there's actually hope for real change. And I want to talk about the four factors that I've been talking about already and the framework of structural violence more broadly. But I want to talk about really how this provides opportunities for eliminating violence against women. 
I also want to return to the current problem of the increasing rates of violence during COVID and try to draw these various ideas all together. So the main thing I want to draw attention to from all the examples I've given is really the change is possible. Violence Against Women isn't cast in stone, but it is sticky. So it's really what Rittel and Weber have referred to as a wicked problem. Wicked problems for Rittel and Weber are really problems that cannot be solved through rational methods of the natural sciences and engineering. So they say that it's often difficult to pin them down and it's difficult to understand what the cause of the problem actually is. So just in this example, as part of the EVE project, as I mentioned, we're trying to do a, a review of risk factors for violence in high prevalence settings. The literature is vast and there are multiple overlapping risk factors without real clear pathways of violence reduction. It's all a bit of a mishmash. And so this to me quintessentially is the definition of a wicked problem. So Rittel and Weber really have defined wicked problems as wicked as a means of pointing to the ways in which how we conceptualize the problem itself shapes what we then potentially see as possible solutions. So if we define violence against women as an inevitable reality of our lives, that it's about gender inequalities in human societies, it's something that happens when people get stressed, as something that particularly affects people living in poverty, then actually we probably won't ever try to eradicate it. And I don't think this needs to happen. We don't really need to resign ourselves to failure. And I think there's some good reasons why. The first is really gender. So like all social inequalities, gender's not a fixed entity. Different countries and different societies have different ideas about gender and different ideas about what makes men's and women's lives, what are the, the sort of the common social norms about men's and women's lives. So I think conversations about gender fluidity and the experience of transgender individuals in many high prevalence settings has really highlighted this. It's even highlighted the fact that the separation between men and women into two distinct categories of experience is not necessarily a fixed reality. Gender ultimately is a social construction. We create it, which means it can change, which is good news. So if ideas about what it makes an ideal man or an ideal woman, or even the idea that men and women are the only two options available, if this is changeable, then acts of violence that rely on these definitions are definitely also changeable. So this is essentially what we're trying to do with the EVE project. We're really in the early stages still, but what we're doing is working with community members in Samoa to really understand what is accepted behavior and more importantly, what are the underlying reasons why violence may or may not be accepted by some members of the community? So communities are never really fixed entities. Um, ideas about violence are contested within communities and by different people who live there. So our plan is really to identify the perceptions by individual community members that might support violence prevention and then use these as a means of working with the communities to co-develop an intervention that can actually change violent behavior. So in some, what I've been saying really is that gender inequality is socially constructed and we can change it from starting where communities are at when it comes to violence and trying to change the narrative within communities and societies more broadly 
about violence against women. So, and I think a very similar argument can be made around structural inequalities and racism in particular. So much like gender inequalities, these are not fixed. And perhaps the biggest recent example of this is the Black Lives Matter movement. So BLM really transformed organizations it, and the way people saw the world and their place within it with respect to race relations. It changed the narrative around how we discuss race in society today. And it ultimately is a prime example of how structural change is actually possible. I think BLM really provides an important lesson for thinking about how structural inequalities can contribute to violence against women. And so returning to my indigenous example of indigenous women and the structural barriers they have in accessing services for experiences of violence, change is clearly needed in the institutions that provide these services, much like they were with the BLM. So let me give you an example for one of the projects that we've worked on. So in the Peruvian Amazon, we've been working on a project called the GAP Project. So gender-based violence prevention in the Peruvian Amazon. And as part of this project, we were really looking for strategies to improve services for women survivors of violence. At first, we really did our best to try to connect women in the communities to existing services that were around them. But it really soon became clear that women, that local women in the communities didn't want to travel to the shelters that might exist in the closest town, even if they could, because of the discrimination they knew they'd face. And because of how removed these shelters were actually from their own lived reality. And so what we realized fairly quickly was that trying to bring women to these shelters was in many ways reinforcing the structural inequalities that they were already experiencing. And what we needed was a completely alternative solution. So what we did instead was to look for opportunities to really build alternative mechanisms for women's protection from within their communities themselves. And we talked to village chiefs about specific cases of violence and we tried to come up with some local solutions. We discussed the idea of setting up safe houses for women through providing a local network of families that might be willing to provide shelter for women in neighboring communities. And we also talked about the possibility of protecting women experiencing abuse by asking the abusive partner themselves to leave the community rather than the woman. And so the idea was really around having the communities develop their own strategies for a local support network for women experiencing violence. And this is part of an ongoing process for sure. But I think what this example shows is that we can disrupt structural inequalities by asking people in communities affected by these inequalities, how they themselves want to solve issues like violence. So rather than trying to connect people to existing services, our first step really should have been this in the GAP project. So if we see violence not only as a physical attack, but also as part of a system of oppression, then asking those survivors of that oppression what they want is really the first step to subverting it. So the social and economic crisis that is COVID-19 at the moment feels very dark and a bit soul destroying. Um, but I think it also provides an opportunity it's quite unique for
for subverting these systems of oppression. And so I like to think of it as a tightly contained ball of confetti. You throw it up in the air and the pieces come down all around you and you have a choice. You can tidy up the confetti, you can put it back in the ball and you can try to, or you can really try to do something else with it. You could create some art or make a collage. And so when it comes to doing research for me during COVID-19, it sort of feels a bit like this. I had a bunch of ideas that I'd really wrapped up into a nice little ball. Um, I presented my ball to some funders. They liked it and they gave me some funding and I was all ready. I was gonna roll my ball forward. But now after COVID, I have a bunch of confetti. I have tiny pieces of paper ideas scattered all around me and I'm not really sure how to put them back together again. But I think the COVID-19 pandemic has also made me question whether what I wanna do is really wrap them up into the same ball. So let me give you a little bit of a specific example from one of my projects. I had big plans as part of the EVE project of how I was gonna travel to Samoa and Peru. I was gonna hold these important community meetings and I was gonna train local community-based researchers how to do really great interviews about violence. This was really the project that was like the opportunity for me to explore my inner anthropologist. Right? I was gonna take my family live with me. We're gonna live in Samoa for an extended period of time. We're gonna be immersed in the local context so that I could really understand it better. And then all of a sudden I couldn't travel, which meant I couldn't do the training. I couldn't be part of these community meetings or really move to Samoa, at least for the time being. And not only that, but it was actually far more difficult for me to be part of the decisions being made by my local partner organizations. They're often just doing things without necessarily asking me first, which is fine by the way. So, but the reality was I was being forced to really let go of this project that I designed, right? So now we're nearly a year in to the EVE project in Samoa and the result of me letting go has really been the staff from the local university have trained the community-based researchers on how to collect interviews with community members. And they did this in Samoan, the local language. So if I'd been there, I would have done this probably in English with a translator. The community-based researchers also decided that they didn't really like the mobile activities that I designed as a strategy for dealing with um, COVID-19 restrictions. So what they wanted to do was to collect traditional myths and folklore stories instead. And these are really sort of integral to the local Samoan culture and ways of communicating. So some of these stories are unbelievably remarkable. They tell us so much about local culture and how it perceives women's roles in, in Samoan society. And I simply never would have gotten this had I done it my way. So for me, COVID has really been a lesson in letting go, giving more control over to local partners. It's been about trusting these partners and local communities rather than potentially patronizing them with my Western ideas about what research should look like. So COVID has really helped disrupt the structural inequalities between me as a white Western researcher working in global health and my research partners in Samoa, simply by taking me and the power position I represent, of course, out of the equation. So this has been a huge realization. I spent so much of my career talking about the need to address structural inequalities as an underlying cause of violence against women. 
And yet my own research practices in global health and violence against women research have in many ways been reaffirming these same inequalities. And I think this is just not right. We need new solutions. Okay, but so coming back to what does this all tell us about how to address violence against women during COVID? Well, let's go back to the world I asked you, I asked you to imagine at the beginning. So for me personally, this world has palm trees, um, a blue ocean, perhaps with some tropical fish, but go back to whatever it was for you. So remember I said there is no violence against women. Well, now we have an understanding that it's not only that there isn't anyone beating their wives, but it's much broader than that. In order for there not to be violence, we need to see a breakdown in the structural violence that positions certain people in society as more entitled to their freedoms than others, ultimately. And this might refer to relationships between men and women or indigenous and settler peoples, people who are black or white, able or disabled, trans or cisgendered, and by all means, all the complex social identities that are in between those, those binaries that we have. So how do we get to this world? Well, I think, first of all, we need to believe that change is possible. And I've talked about the reasons why I fundamentally think it is. Second, we need something to shake things up a bit and make us see the world in a different way. <gasps> I think I might've just had that year, actually. <laughs> um, and in fact, the COVID-19 crisis has brought about, brought women and violence against women into the spotlight like nothing has before. So people are finally starting to have real conversations about this. And I, I feel personally quite encouraged by that fact, even in spite of the rising rates of violence during lockdown. Third, I think it's really important that we stop blaming violent men for violence against women. So this is an issue that we're all responsible for as a society at large, and it's fundamentally a structural problem. If we blame violent men for the problem, then in a way we're also blaming the women who choose them as intimate partners. And finally, I think we need to start focusing on potential solutions and more crucially, perhaps asking women and communities experiencing violence themselves, what they think those solutions should really be. So for me, this is the crux. It's ultimately about asking people experiencing and perpetrating violence about the potential solutions. And it's through this that we can really leverage the devastation that COVID-19 has wrought on all of our lives um, and start to disrupt what is ultimately the structural forms of violence that reproduce violence against women around the world. So thank you. Wow, jean -Pierre. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was brilliant. A tour de force. And uh, we're going to take some questions. Uh, there have been one or two uh, coming in on the slider, but perhaps I could kick off because I've got about, I've got lots of questions. But um, this is a massive problem. And it's also a massive child health problem because partner violence affects families and has an intergenerational effect as well. And so I'm, I am interested in, you know, what one can do to change norms and to tackle some of the longer term structural issues. But two things I, I'd like to raise with you as potential interventions and, and your views on this. 
The first one, which I think is really interesting, arises from COVID in South Africa, where because they desperately needed hospital beds, they actually put a ban on alcohol. And the alcohol ban was either partial or complete. And the uh, trends in trauma and violence figures in hospital have been dramatic. They've collapsed. And in Baraguanas Hospital, which is one of the largest in South Africa, on New Year's Eve, for the first time ever, they had no trauma cases in. Mm. So the impacts of alcohol are potentially amenable to policy changes. And it's interesting how much of a taboo subject that is in Western countries. Um, I'm a non-drinker, but you know, whenever I mention about controlling alcohol, all my friends kind of poo-poo it and laugh at me. And you know, but that is that that's one issue in the short term. And I wondered what you thought about this, because it is a very big issue in many countries and including in poor in indigenous communities. Um <clears throat> the second, which has always troubled me when I was at WHO, I you know, everybody kept saying we've got to invest more in adolescent health. Mm but no one was doing it. And if they did do it, it was always about contraception to stop teenage pregnancies, you know, and not really looking at the concerns of adolescents. And it just strikes me that a lot of the norms around what it means to be masculine could be addressed much more by engaging adolescents in groups, either gender separated or mixed, depending upon culture. And I just think that would be a very interesting series of studies to do to look at the impacts of adolescents uh, being engaged and whether that would change their future relationships and the way they interacted uh, with partners. Um, I could say much more, but perhaps I'll let you, let's focus first on those two issues of alcohol and adolescence. Yeah, okay. So, so the first one, sort of looking at alcohol, Alcohol is certainly a trigger for violence, right? And we certainly see that in contexts around the world. So if you have policy that puts a limitation on that trigger, you're going to reduce violence against women in the short term. I just, I'm not entirely convinced that it's a long-term solution because you're not addressing the underlying causes of violence against women. You're not addressing what I think are sort of the structural drivers of violence against women at all. You're really just addressing this sort of crisis point or trigger that happens in certain communities. And so, and I think you can see that specifically if you look at contexts like Afghanistan where alcohol is illegal and has been for, you know, as far as I know, certainly. And so, and that alcohol gets replaced as a trigger through other things. So mental health plays a really big role partly because it's not being addressed by the system behind it. So there's, there's very few services for people who are struggling with the conflict and the effects that it has on their mental health in Afghanistan. So that becomes a trigger all of a sudden. And then as well as drug use. And so you have these high rates of drug yeah. use because alcohol is, is reduced. And so I just, if you're not addressing the underlying structural aspects of this, then actually it's just going to find new triggers is what my argument would be. And so it might reduce in the short term because that is the trigger in, in many societies, right? Alcohol is the trigger. But if we're not really getting at the structural inequalities, is policy that does address alcohol really effective in the long term? I'm not sure. Um, secondly, on adolescent health, I completely, <laughs> completely agree. I think 
Adolescence is such a defining moment in our lives, right? And it is the moment when these ideas about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman in society are really set and formed for us in our lives. And so it's such a key moment to be able to do interventions. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of reasons why we haven't kind of unpacked that, right? We're, we're working on young people. So we're, we couldn't do adolescent, we're working on a project with young people in South Africa. And the reason why we couldn't do adolescence was because of the ethical requirements and the stickiness around those ethical requirements. And so I said, okay, well, we'll do young adults. But what we found is that, you know, I'm in my, I'm in my forties. I know absolutely nothing about young people's lives at all. And it's such, it's such a huge kind of realization that all of a sudden, you know, 20 years has passed and I cannot relate to these, the world that they live in at all anymore. And so it's, it's such as, I think we need to do adolescent interventions really, really carefully. If we're talking about trying to think about how masculinities and femininities are formed in that really sort of key area. And I think it comes back to what I was saying throughout this whole talk was really, we need to talk to adolescents about how they themselves see their world and what their lives are like and what role does masculinities and femininities play in violence and how do they think it could be prevented? Because if we don't do that, we're certainly going to get it wrong. Okay, listen, we've got several other questions and I'm going to um, uh, put three of them out there uh, and then you could take them one by one. Okay. Actually, four. Um, so I've got... Uh, one which is quite funny. Do you still plan on going to Samoa? That's one. Okay. Um, how can exposure to queerness reduce violence against women in significantly conservative societies? So Samoa, queerness. How can we protect women in regions of ongoing conflict? And finally, this is interesting. Is it the West's right to tell other countries they should change their social norms, such as men being the authoritative figures in households? Oh, that's a controversial one. That's a good one. Okay. So, Samoa first. <clears throat> okay, so yes, it's still in the cards. I think I think I'm I'm obviously an optimistic by heart and so I do hope to um to spend some time in Samoa. Samoa has so they had a measles outbreak probably a year before COVID hit so it's been a few years ago now and that meant that they were very very quick in their response to to COVID and they shut the borders really early on and have managed to keep cases pretty much non-existent so actually the issue suddenly becomes I need to probably be vaccinated before it's ethical to travel right. there um, but the borders need to actually open up too. But it's definitely still the part of the plan because I think it's key to the project that I really want to do. Can I just um, before you answer yeah. anything else, can I just chip in? Because I think you touched on an incredibly important point that I realized gradually in my research career, important for students to know. Somebody said to me once, one of the most important things you do when you work overseas in a country is to leave. <laughs> and And the point is that you mustn't stifle or you know, because they'll be very respectful to someone like you and me, you know. I, and I think you've learned that lesson, that in a sense, the less you do there, 
your role is still important and you should definitely still go there if you can. But it is an important lesson about partnership. Yes. Yes. And in, in many ways, I, I'm certainly self-aware of the fact that me going to Samoa is a bit of a, of a selfish act. I'm not sure that it's going, I think it'll make my ability to interpret the data much better, but actually that's probably the only thing that it's going to do that's good for the research. No, actually, I think they'll love to see you. I think, and also <laughs> you can acknowledge what they've done and that will be yeah. hugely appreciated. So if you can, and you offset your travel. <laughs> well, and what they're doing is amazing. It really is. They're just yeah. doing a fantastic Sounds job. Amazing. I really, I really cannot, cannot speak highly enough about my local partners. Um, so the exposure to queerness, I think that's such a fascinating question. I think <laughs> I kind of want to say yes, but I also have this take thing in the back of my head that sort of worries that because so much in my experience, so much of the violence has been about sort of subverting gender norms, that exposure to queerness in an abrupt way might actually just increase violence. And that, that would be my concern in the immediate. Yeah. But I do think that sort of thinking about, <laughs> as I was saying, conversations around gender fluidity and conversations about transgender are the things that have many ways sort of pushed our understanding beyond this binary between men and women and really opened up the possibility that there's other ways to live your life. And that's, fantastically valuable and so in a I'd, I'd love that conversation to have more uptake in other places in the world but I think we have to let it happen as it happens and not and be a little bit wary of of pushing that envelope too fast yeah. because of how it might put people in danger um how do we protect women in conflict so the work that I've done in <laughs> conflict settings has really highlighted the massive importance of mental health, um, both for men and women. So it's such a huge driver of, of violence, especially in conflict settings. So in Afghanistan, we've seen that again and again, that in many ways you need kind of what I would say are probably family interventions. So really focusing on families who are living in conflict and how to work through that experience of living in a conflict setting and all the instability that it provides in your lives. Um, obviously the, the ideal scenario is to stop the conflict <laughs> and to help people recover. But I think when you are in an active conflict, you need to think about other mitigating strategies that might help people just survive a little bit better. Um, and then, you know, do we have a right to go into other countries and tell them to change their social norms. I think this is something that I've struggled with probably throughout my entire career and will continue to struggle with. Um, and I would say on the face surface it, no, actually, I don't think that, that we do have this right to go in and say, you need to look at, you know, men need to be doing dishes in the household and this needs to be a different way of thinking about it. But I actually don't think that social norms are something that all communities think of in the same way and that there's always resistance within a community. There's always resistance within a certain patterns of social norms. So you can see that even in like doing interviews with men and women in communities, they see these things completely differently. And so if 
the resistance already exists in the community to the social norms that position men and women in certain ways, then often it's just about identifying those points of resistance and supporting them. So I'm not talking about me going in and saying, this is the way you need to see your social norms, but actually identifying the people who need the support in the communities that are already there. The activists, the local change makers. I think that's what's important. It's interesting. um, In South Asia, historically, there has been um, a, a, a tolerance in many countries of transgender groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're often assigned to their own caste, um, uh, but also tolerated in Pakistan, in Nepal, in Bangladesh and elsewhere, uh, which is rather different from some other continents where uh, there's a lot of homophobia and um, aggression and even illegality assigned to that. That's one interesting. But there's another question has come in. What are your views on the stickers women movement in France and England, which condemns the men behind domestic violence rather than the structural issue? Yeah, I think so. I think I've sort of made myself clear in this presentation that I think it's it's not necessarily helpful because it doesn't acknowledge the ways in which we all feed into these norms, actually. It sort of says, you know what, this is about one violent man and he's horrible. And in a sense, it's like projecting all of the ways in which we ourselves contribute to the structural violence or structural inequalities in our lives, in our own lives. And putting that on this one individual as sort of a scapegoat. And I don't, I don't think that leads to long-term change. I think it just makes you feel better about yourself, <laughs> ultimately. Um, by putting it outside of yourself and not taking ownership for the ways in which we all have notions of femininity and masculinity. And many of those notions might not be entirely supportive of, of violence prevention. Okay, two, two final points. One was in our women's group studies, um, men's violence, particularly in relation to alcohol abuse, often came up in the groups. And, and in some instances, the groups became quite active about it and used the group as a way to put pressure on the household uh, to change behaviour and the like. And I got the impression this could be quite successful as a strategy because the woman stayed in the village and had the support of neighbours and it put some stigma and shame on the husband to change. Um, So I don't know what you think about that. And if I'll I'll give you my other question and then we'll, we'll wrap up after this. So the role of empowering women through community groups, which could also be used to tackle Um, domestic violence. The second is closer to home, COVID in the UK. I read at the weekend that the number of households in destitution Mm -hmm. defined by less than £100 a week for a couple, less than £70 a week for an individual has doubled since COVID with an increase of 220,000 households. And that's only going to get worse in the coming months. Um, Are we going to see or are we seeing right now or do we have any figures on the kind of levels of domestic violence? We read about it, but is there anything quantitative that you know about? So women's groups and COVID in the UK. 
Yeah. Okay. So <coughs> women's groups, I think, you know, Anthony, that I'm definitely sort of on board with the women's groups idea and <laughs> very supportive of it and have been for years. I do. So I think, you know, it's that, can you strike a change within a community by being one individual woman in a community that doesn't necessarily see the problem with violence, right? If you're being abused. And the problem, the answer is probably not. You need collective action of some sort. You need some sort of power that comes through group um, identity and mobilization. And I think that's just sort of the fundamental place that I've come from as a scholar too, and my individual sort of views on things. So I think there's a lot of power in that and a lot of power of thinking of women's groups. So it begs the question though, can you just empower women or do you have to mm. also work with the men in the community in order to, mm. to acknowledge yeah. the change that is coming from women? Because I think it can also be potentially problematic if you're just empowering women and you're not thinking about community as a whole. Yeah. So there's that context. Um, COVID <laughs> and poverty. So I haven't so much looked into the figures that do exist within the UK. I think in the UK, mostly just because it's not my context. <laughs> so, but I think it's, it's fascinating to think of the fact that a lot of what we know about violence in the UK is not through these surveys that we tend to do in other countries, right? They're not household surveys. It's actually tends to be about reporting. And we all know that reporting is far lower than actual rates of violence. And so any study that you're going to get in the UK is going to be an underreporting of actually what's happening. Yeah. Um, and I think you probably are going to see that even more pronounced within COVID just because of the ways in which we collect data. John, thank you so much. It's been a fantastic presentation, very thought provoking. And I think for our students, those that are watching, will give them a lot of ideas about an arena which is still Although there's been lots written, there's still many things to do, particularly around interventions that might have some longer term impact. I just remind everybody that these lunchtime lectures are uh, a brilliant window on a whole range of uh, activities and research at UCL. And <laughs> because I don't have my notes in front of me, I've forgotten the link, but I think it's something to do at UCL Living Minds, is it? Is that the right? I may have got that wrong. But nonetheless, uh, UCL Minds, I've just been uh, messaged. Uh, do come back and visit because you get some really great lectures from all over the UCL and we've got such an array of talent. It's not true. So thank you once again to everyone that's joined. Thank you to the people that have helped organise this. Um, Thank you to my phone, which rescued me now that my computer's broken. And most of all, thank you to Jean-Vierre, because that was uh, brilliant.